Chapter Thirty Nine of Forest Days by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Nine. The king has sat down to supper, my good lord," said one of the young earl's attendants, meeting him at the door of his apartments, and wondered that you were not there. A seat is kept for you, however. Is it near the prince? demanded Alured. Nay, my lord, the prince is gone," replied the man. "Did you not know it? Gone!" exclaimed the young nobleman. "Gone whither?" "To Leicester, my lord," said the servant. "While you and Sir Guy de Margam were conversing here, news came from Leicester of a revolt amongst the peasants there, and the prince set out at once with some fifty men. Tis not half an hour since." "Why, he is to be the judge of the field the day after tomorrow," cried the earl in surprise and evident disappointment. "I heard him tell the king myself, my lord." Replied the man that he would be back ere sunset tomorrow. This is unfortunate," murmured Alured. "This is most unfortunate, but it can't be helped." And after making some slight change in his apparel and giving some orders in a low but earnest voice, he hastened to the hall. Henry, as soon as he appeared, greeted him with light merriment, saying. You are late for the banquet, noble earl. But we forgive you, as we doubt not some fair lady held you in chains of dalliance, not to be broken. Nay, sire," replied the earl gravely. "My heart is too full of other things to think of levities. I was with a sick friend, and the time, though it passed heavily, was not noted. A sick friend is as good an excuse as a fair lady," said the king, "and one that may be pleaded at all times." Nay, sire," replied Mortimer, who was sitting near. "Neither fair lady nor sick friend can be a moment's excuse for delay in day of battle, or even, I hold, of tournament." "A high question of chivalry," replied the king. "Let some of our old knights decide it. What say you, Sir John Hardy?" "That the matter has been decided often, my liege," said the old soldier, who was placed some way down the table. And who spoke with grave deliberation on the subject which he considered all important. No excuse on earth can be received for the man who has touched a challenger's shield, or taken an accuser's glove, or received his leader's command to prepare for battle, if he be more than a quarter of an hour behind the time appointed. That space is given in case of accident or men's judgment differing as to time. Thus, the trumpets may sound thrice with five minutes between each blast. But if he comes not at the third call, he is held coward and recreant by all civilized men, and can plead nothing unless it be the commands of his sovereign as an excuse. The honour of a knight," said another old soldier, in an authoritative and somewhat pedantic tone, "should be as bright as his shield, as clear and cutting as his sword, and as pointed and steady as his lance. What he has once asserted." That he should maintain to the death, for whatever cause there may be for retracting, an imputation on his courage will still lie, if he make a moment's delay in meeting an enemy in the field. Hugh de Mortimer remained calm and pale, but the cheek of Alured de Ashby flushed as if every word he heard was fire. As soon as possible after the banquet, he quitted the hall and sought his apartments with a hurried and irregular step. He found the armourers still busy in their task as he passed through the outer chamber, and pausing at the bench where they were working, 
He gazed down upon the weapons under their hands with a thoughtful but abstracted look. Then, with a sudden start, clenching his hand tight, he said, "'See that all be firm and strong, Mapleton, yet not too heavy.' "'Fear not, my lord, fear not,' replied the armourer. "'There never was better steel in all the world, and these poilins are a rare invention for the defence of the elbows and knees. I have prepared a garland, too, my lord, for your neck. I know you love it not, but tis much safer, if you will but wear it, though it does spoil the look of the hauberk. It must be confessed. But very often I have known the blow of a lance right in the throat kill or disable a knight, though the spear went not through the rings. "'Tis a trick with the Lord Hugh, too, I hear, to aim at the throat. "'They say he killed two men, sir, at Evesham, "'and the soldan of Egypt's brother when he was in Payne Imri. "'Alred de Ashby had long ceased to listen, "'but with his brow bent and his eyes fixed upon the arms, "'he stood thinking of other things, "'till the armourer ceased and looked up in his face, "'and then, turning away, he quitted the room without any reply.' When in his own chamber he closed the door, and for nearly two hours his foot might be heard walking to and fro, sometimes indeed pausing for a minute or two, but still resuming its heavy tread. Who can depict all the stormy passions that agitated him at that moment, the struggle that was taking place in his bosom, so different from that which had torn the heart of Hugh de Mothama, though as violent in its degree, and proceeding from the same events? to fight in an unrighteous quarrel, to go solemnly appealing to heaven for the justice of his cause, and to feel that that cause was unjust, deliberately to persist in charging an innocent man with a horrible crime of which he knew him to be innocent. It was a fearful contemplation for one in whom conscience had not been smothered under many evil deeds, notwithstanding the faults and follies which sometimes blinded his eyes to right and wrong but yet to retract the accusation he had made, to acknowledge that he had erred, to own that he had been rash and weak, to see Hugh de Mothama triumph, all this was repugnant to the most powerful vices of his character, to jealous pride and irritable vanity. Nevertheless, this he might have overcome, for, as we have shown, there was a high sense of honour in his nature, and the voice of conscience was strong enough, when the question was one of such mighty moment, to overpower the busy tongue of passion and lead him to what was right. But alas, there was another consideration. He feared the loss of renown. The very suspicion of any dread of his adversary was enough to put every good resolution to flight, and unhappily the laws of chivalry opposed a barrier to his pursuing the only course of rectitude, which would have been difficult enough to surmount even had his natural disposition been different from what it was. Then came back the remembrance of the conversation which had taken place at the banquet. It seemed to him as if the two old knights who had declared the rules of arms had been sitting in judgment on the cause pleaded by the disputants in his own bosom. They had pronounced against the voice of conscience. They had given sentence in favour of that fantastic honour which was based more on personal courage than on truth. Good heaven, he thought, that the world should suspect he was afraid to meet in arms the man he had accused, 
that he should fear Hugemothema, that he should take advantage of any new-risen doubt to withdraw a charge which he had solemnly made, and shrink from a combat which he had himself provoked. How would men jeer at his name? How silent would the herald stand when he entered the court or the tilt-yard? He pictured to himself a thousand imaginary insults. He saw knights refusing to break a lance with one who had shrunk from the wager of battle he had demanded. He saw ladies turning away their heads in scorn from the craven knight who had feared to meet an equal in the field. He could not, he would not do it. And yet conscience still cried aloud, ay, and the voice of Kate Greenley rang in his ears, telling him that conscience was powerful to overthrow as well as to admonish, prophesying to him that he would fall before the lance of the man he knowingly injured, and that shame and defeat, as well as injustice and falsehood, would be his companions on that fatal field. Foul before the girl, he cried, for putting such thoughts into my head. They hang upon me like a spell. They will cling to me in the hour of battle. Many a man has fought in an unjust cause. I am many a one has fallen. In this ordeal, is the judgment of God shown, or is it not? Is it possible to conceive that we can appeal to him and call upon him to defend the right and solemnly swear that our cause is just, all the time having a lie upon our lips, and that he will not punish? He were worse than the god of the Mosulma if he did not. What then shall I gain? For the first time in life I shall soil my soul with an untruth. I shall take a false oath. I shall be defeated, disgraced, with the judgment of God pronouncing that I am perjured, and die leaving a stained and blackened name behind. And yet to withdraw the charge is impossible, he continued. Better disgrace and hide me from contumely in the grave than live and meet the scornful looks of every knight in Europe. My only chance is in the prince. Perhaps he may stop it. Would he were here. I would give him the paper now. Yet I must show no desire to recant the accusation. I remember how his proud lip curled when that braggart de Poix slunk from the melee at the Northampton tournament on pretence that his horse was lame. Curses on my own precipitate haste, but still deeper curses on that traitor Richard who urged me on. Would I could know the truth. Oh, if I thought that it was so, I would tear his heart from his body and trample it quivering in the dust. The foul villain, and my father so good to him. Such were some of the broken and disjointed thoughts which crossed the mind of Alured de Ashby, and from them the reader may form some idea of the agitated state of his feelings during that night. He slept scarcely at all till morning, but he then fell into a deep slumber which lasted several hours, and from which he rose refreshed and calmer, but nevertheless stern and sad. He was restless, too, and the hesitating and undecided state of his mind on the most pressing subject before him rendered him wavering in all his actions. In the morning several of his servants, who had been out all night, according to orders he had given them, came in to make their report, and informed him that though they had watched steadily at the spot which he had pointed out, no one had come out of the house but a priest and a little boy bearing a torch. He then sent for some of the old retainers of the family, 
who had been at Lindwell when his father was slain, and on their arrival questioned them minutely on many points, and then he told his people that he was going to the apartments of his sister. But when he came to the foot of the stairs, he paused, turned back again, and strode up and down the court for half an hour. His next proceeding was to order his horses instantly, and he set out on the road to Leicester. When he was about halfway there, however, he turned his charger's head and reached the gates of Nottingham just as night was falling. The city warder told him, in answer to his questions, that the prince had not returned, but that a messenger from him had arrived an hour before, and it was rumoured that Edward would not be back until the following morning. The earl shook the bridle of his horse fiercely and galloped up to the castle. Before he reached it, however, the fit of angry impatience had passed away, and on dismounting he proceeded direct to the apartments of the prince, and sent in a page to say he wished to see the lady Lucy. He was instantly admitted to her chamber, where the sight of her fair face, bearing evident marks of tears, and full of deep and inconsolable sorrow, shook his purposes again, and added to all the bitterness of his feelings. Alirid kissed her tenderly, but he perceived that though she uttered not a word of reproach, she shrunk from him, and that was reproach enough. At his desire she sent away her maids, and then, sitting down beside her, he took her hand in his, saying, "'Lucy, I have come to see you, perhaps for the last time.' She cast down her eyes and made no reply, and he went on, "'It is not fit, Lucy, that you and I should part with one cold feeling between us, and I come to ask forgiveness for any pain that I have caused you throughout life.' "'Oh, Alured!' exclaimed Lucy, the last and most dreadful pain may yet be avoided. But I know your stern and unchangeable heart too well to hope. You cannot but feel how horrible it is to see my brother and my promised husband armed against each other's life, meeting in lists from which one or the other must be born a corpse. You cannot but know, Alured, that to me the misery is the same, whichever is the victor, that I have nothing to hope, that I have nothing to look for. If Hugh de Muthamer is vanquished, my brother is the murderer of him I love. Ay, murderer, Alured, she added solemnly, for you are well aware that in your heart you believe him innocent. If you fall before Hugh de Muthamer's lance, the man I love becomes a butcher of my brother, and I can never see his face again. Stay, Lucy, stay, said the earl. It is on this account that I have come to you. I have had much and bitter thought, Lucy. Hugh de Muthamer may be innocent. God only knows the heart of man, and he will decide. But if I die in the lists to-morrow, and he you love is proved to be innocent of my father's death, let my blood rest upon my own head, hold him guiltless of my fate, and wed him as if Alured de Ashby had not been. Oh, Alured, cried Lucy, touched to the heart, casting her arms around him at the same time, and weeping on his bosom. No, no, that can never be. Yes, but it must and shall be, replied her brother. I will not do you wrong, Lucy, in my dying hour. Here, I have put down in a few brief words my resolution and my wishes. Read, Lucy. What, your eyes are dim with tears? Well, I will read it. I, Alured de Ashby, 
about to do battle with the Lord Hugh de Mothmer, to whom the hand of my sister Lucy was promised by my father before his decease, having lately had some cause to doubt the truth of the charge which I have brought against the said Lord, of having compassed the death of my father, do hereby give my consent to the marriage of my sister with the said Hugh de Mothmer, if at any time he can prove fully and clearly that he is innocent of the deed. And I do beseech my sister, entreat and require her in that case, to give her hand to Hugh de Mothmer, whatever may have taken place between him and myself. There, girl, keep that paper and use it when thou wilt. Now, art thou contented? Contented, Alured? cried Lucy, looking reproachfully in his face. Contented? Do you think I can be contented to know that either he or you must die? What you take from one scale you cast into the other. If my heart can be lightened respecting him by this generous act, how much more heavy the grief and terror that I feel for you. Oh, Alured, you say that you now doubt his guilt? Why not boldly and at once express that doubt? Why not? My honour, child, my honour and renown, cried Alured to Ashby. But you will unman me, Lucy. Here, give this sealed packet to the prince whenever he returns. Perhaps he has returned, said Lucy. The princess told me he would be back ere nightfall. He has changed his purpose, replied her brother, and will not be in Nottingham till tomorrow. Alas, alas, exclaimed Lucy, that is unfortunate. It cannot be helped, answered the young earl, but give it to the prince whenever he comes. Tell him that therein are contained the proofs which have lately made me doubt the justice of my charge against Mothama. He must act as he thinks fit regarding them. But remember, Lucy, that if I fall and you become Mothama's wife, he takes the retribution of blood upon him, and must pursue the murderers of our father till he approve their guilt upon them, and give them up to death. And now, girl, fare thee well. Nay, Alured, she cried, clinging to him, listen to me yet one word. If you be so doubtful, can you swear— Hush, hush, he answered. My mind is now made up beyond all alteration. I will do everything to clear me before God, and make my conscience easy. But I must never shrink from battle. I must never sully my renown. I must never bear the name of coward, or know that one man suspects I am such. Farewell, Lucy, farewell, not one word more. And kissing her tenderly, she unclasped the clinging arms that would have held him, and left her chamber. For a moment Lucy covered her eyes and wept, but the next instant, clasping her hands together, she cried, I will go to Hugh, and will beseech him. He is more tender, he has more trust in his own great renown. The victor at Demietta, the conqueror of the lists at Sidon, need fear no injurious suspicion. I will go to him. I will entreat him on my knees. But first to the princess with this packet. She must give it to her husband. What does it contain, I wonder? Lucy gazed at it for a moment and then at the other paper which her brother had given her. Suddenly a light like that of joy broke upon her face and she exclaimed, he will, he will. Why should I fear? Why should I doubt? He told me himself that in seven days he could prove his innocence. He will, he will. And with this before me, I need fear no shame. But now, to the princess. 
and with a quick step she hurried to the apartments of Eleanor, whom for once she found alone. She was too deeply agitated for courtly ceremony, and gliding in she approached the princess as she sat reading, and knelt on the cushion at her feet. "'What is it, my poor Lucy?' said the princess, bending down her head and kissing her fair forehead, with a look of tender compassion. "'There seems some happiness mingled with the sorrow of your look.' "'Tis that I have hope,' replied Lucy, and with a rapid but low word she related all that had passed between her brother and herself. She then put the packet into Eleanor's hands, saying, "'It will prove his innocence, I am sure, but the prince is absent, and I am afraid you will not open it.' "'Nay,' answered Eleanor, "'I must not venture on such an act as that. I am only bold where it is to show my love for him, but not to meddle in matters of which he alone can judge. Neither is there occasion here, my Lucy. He will be back ere long.' "'But Eliot thought not,' replied her fair companion. "'He had heard that the prince's journey from Leicester was put off till to-morrow morning.' "'Not so, not so,' replied the princess. "'Twas but delayed for an hour or two, and he sent, lest I should fear the rebels had detained him. "'I expect him each minute, Lucy. "'But in the meantime, tell me more clearly what caused that look of joy just now.' "'Lucy hesitated.' "'Twas that a hope had crossed my mind,' she said. "'A hope that I might yet save them both. "'And surely, lady,' she continued, "'raising her soft, dark eyes to Eleanor's face, "'and surely to save both the life of a brother and a lover, "'to spare them deeds that can never be atoned, "'to shield Alurid not only from Mothamus Lance, "'but from the more terrible fate of going to his god "'with a false charge upon his lips, "'a charge which he knows to be false.' A woman may well put on a boldness she would otherwise shrink from. Aye, and do things which maiden modesty would forbid, and not the cause so great and overpowering. Certainly, rejoined Eleanor, so long as virtue and religion say not nay. God forbid that I should sin against either, replied Lucy eagerly. That could never be, lady. But there be small forms and prudent cautions, reserves, and cold proprieties, which— in the ordinary intercourse of life, are near akin to virtues, though separate. These surely must be laid aside. When the matter is to rescue from crime, from death, or from disgrace, being so much beloved as these. Assuredly, exclaimed Eleanor, who can doubt it? To save my Edward, what should stand in my way? "'Nothing but that honour which I know he values more than all earthly things, or even life itself.' "'Thanks, lady, thanks,' cried Lucy. "'You confirm me in my purpose.' "'But what is your purpose, my sweet cousin?' asked the princess. "'I do not yet comprehend you.' "'Will you promise me,' said Lucy, "'that if I tell you, you will let me have my will, "'that you will put no bar or hindrance in my way, "'nor inform any one of my scheme but with my leave?' Eleanor smiled. "'I may well promise that,' she answered. "'For if you please, you may conceal your scheme, and then I am powerless. No bar or hindrance will I place, dear Lucy, but kind remonstrances, if I think you wrong. What is this plan of yours?' "'This, this,' cried Lucy. "'Here on this paper has my brother written down that he doubts Hugh de Mothama's guilt.' "'that he so much doubts the truth of the charge which he himself has made "'as to require his sister to overlook the shedding of his blood 
and unite her fate with the man who slays him, if he should fall in those fatal lists. Nay, lady, look you here, he puts no condition, but that you, Demothema, should prove his innocence. Well, said Eleanor, I see he is kind and generous, and evidently believes the charge was rashly made, and is not just. Yet naught will keep him, replied Lucy, from sustaining that charge to-morrow at the lance's point, although he knows it to be false. Tears, prayers, entreaties, appeals to conscience and to honour are all in vain with him. He will die, but yield no jot of what he thinks his fame requires. He would not withdraw the accusation if an angel told him it were untrue. But Hugh is not so stern and cruel, lady. He will listen to reason and to right. He told me himself that he would have laid down his battle hand, would but the king have named a few days later, for he is as sure as of his own life to prove the guilt upon another man. Oh, lady, in that long, sad interview, he was as much shaken as I, a poor, weak girl. Yet what could I say? What could I do, so long as my brother maintained the charge in all its virulence? Now, however, now I will hie to him, I, lady, she continued, even to his chamber. I will beseech him for mercy's sake, for my sake, for our love's sake, to avoid this unholy counter, for the peace, for the comfort throughout life of the lady that he loves, to quit this place ere morning's dawn to-morrow. He will not do it, answered Eleanor sadly. You will but wring his heart and break your own. He will not do it. I will soften him with my tears, said Lucy vehemently. I will kneel to him on the ground. I will cover his hand with my kisses and water it with my eyes. Eleanor shook her head. I will offer to go with him, said Lucy in a low and thrilling tone, fixing her eyes with a look of doubt and inquiry on the princess's face. Ha! cried Eleanor, starting, while for a moment the colour mounted into her cheek. But the next instant she cast her arms round Lucy and bent her head towards her with a smile, saying, And thou wilt conquer. Dear, devoted girl, I dare not altogether approve and sanction what you do. Yet I will add, hard were the heart, and discourteous were the lip, to blame thee. The object is a mighty one. No common means will reach it, and surely, if thou dost succeed in saving thy brother both from a great crime and a great danger, and proving thy lover innocent without risking his renown, thou shalt deserve high praise and honour, and no censure, even in this foul-tongued world in which we live. But stay yet a while. Edward will soon be here, and perchance this letter itself may render the trial needless. You say that it contains proof of your lover's innocence? So my brother told me, replied Lucy, proofs that I have shaken even his stern spirit. But, lady, you must not betray my secret to the prince, for he will stop our departure. If I tell him, answered Eleanor, my promise shall bind both. But doubtless the king, if there be any clear proofs here, in these papers, will order the wager of battle to be delayed. But go, get thee ready for thy task, dear Lucy. When Edward comes, I will send for thee again. End of chapter 39